Welcome to Silicon Valley Momentum, where advisor and author Roland Siebeling talks all things tech startups and brings you interviews with founders across the world. Now, here's your host. Hello and welcome to the Silicon Valley Momentum podcast. I am Roland Siebeling and I am an advisor and coach for scale-ups around the world. And I'm so happy because today we have Doug Petkanix with us, who is the CEO and founder of LivePeer, joining us from, I believe, New York City. Is that right, Doug? Yep, that's right. Thanks for having me on, Roland. Excited to be here. Absolutely. So LivePeer, tell our audience, what do you guys do? What targets group do you have in mind? And what difference do you make for them in the world? Sure thing. So yeah, LivePeer, our mission is to build the world's open video infrastructure. I think in the last year, more than ever, people have seen how much of a role video streaming and online video plays in their lives. And it actually turns out that building video-enabled applications is very, very expensive due to the high cost of compute infrastructure and delivery infrastructure. And uh, going back four years when we started, we actually saw an opportunity to bring the cost of this infrastructure down, you know, an order of magnitude over 10x. And happy mm-hmm. to talk about how we can do that. We actually built on open source software and blockchain technology to create an open video infrastructure that anyone can access and build video streaming applications on. And the result is, you know, a 10 times more affordable infrastructure that lets developers build great streaming applications to create new video use cases that help you know, creators, businesses, and consumers. That's awesome. So your customers, target customers, are really developers of apps, of applications that need video streaming capability and want to do that more efficiently? Yep, absolutely right. Yep, developers and entrepreneurs building video-enabled applications. Excellent. So do you have a few examples that can uh, illustrate for our audience uh, what kind of impact you've been having? What kind of customers do you work with? Yep, definitely. Our focus has been on user-generated content and Mm creator-driven content. These are the types of applications that let their users typically stream for free initially and let them Mm -hmm. spread those streams publicly to large audiences. Mm -hmm. Um, A great example is a site called playdj.tv. Okay. It's a streaming platform for DJs, right? And on every Friday night, they have, you know, 50 or 100 DJs streaming sets all around the world, right? And an example of the impact we made is they actually, you know, released their initial product on traditional infrastructure, had a thousand DJs sign up in the first two weeks, and they actually had to pause it and shut it down because it was bankrupting them to have to wow. pay video streaming infrastructure bills. And then so, you know, we worked with them on our affordable infrastructure to get live, get back online. And now they're a sustainable site that you know, has grown and, and found its own effective model that wouldn't have been possible uh, mm-hmm. on traditional platforms. So your, your real competitors are the traditional cloud platforms, as I understand it, right? So now any business that is promising to cut costs by, let's say, a factor 10, as I think I heard you say, you know, the second question will, of course, be, well, but can you guarantee the same quality? Uh, how do you do that? What's so special about LivePeer that you can actually undercut competitors by such an amount? Yeah, so something really interesting has been happening in the world, you know, in the last, um, you know, 12 years, but really in the last five or six years, that enabled mm-hmm. these types of things to exist. And this is the advent of blockchain technology and the notion of being able to create open source software and open source protocols mm-hmm. that actually embed economic incentives for people to take actions and contributing to the software and contributing hardware and bandwidth that forms these networks. So mm-hmm. I know that's a big abstract thing, but to make it concrete, <laughs> yeah. um, for the first time, we're able to create 
you know, open source video software, mm -hmm. and we're able to incentivize people who have extra infrastructure lying around to run that software mm. to form a network that can be used for video streaming, right? Mm -hmm. And this gets really interesting. There actually happens to be millions of what are called GPUs, graphical processing units, yep. um, spread around the world in data centers that are mining cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. They happen to have video encoding and decoding chips on mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And you know, through blockchain technology, we can create this open marketplace that routes payments to all of these hardware operators for contributing that compute to this video mm -hmm. infrastructure. And it's kind of that global harnessing of this, this ecosystem that can form a network that can be so cost effective because this hardware is already deployed, it's plentiful, it's already running in a paid off working business model. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. LivePeer enables them to just earn additional revenue no opportunity mm -hmm. cost. You know, of course you need a solid design and you need to have a belief that this token will be valuable because it will allow you to earn mm -hmm. fees later, but it helps bootstrap the network. So you can actually get over the chicken and the egg problem, mm -hmm. bootstrap the supply side. And that's what we did in the first two years of LivePeer. We built this global supply of video infrastructure before we had to solve the problem of how do we onboard a lot of, of usage mm -hmm. onto the network. And that's really been the focus in the last year is onboarding. Yeah, more and more demand. Yeah, that's very good too. Many of the listeners are running a platform model of their own and the chicken and egg problem is of course always one that really bothers them. So you're saying found a way to build one side first, um, but where it doesn't really matter that much to them that the other side is not there yet because what you're selling is more a vision and a belief of what could happen in the future? Correct. They all get to become essentially collective owners in this vision uh -huh. and this belief uh, because these kind of new blockchain-centric business models kind of distribute the ownership of this whole protocol to those who are doing the work through the, the form of the crypto token. Excellent. So let's look at the broader vision. So what are the big trends that you're capitalizing on in uh, building this business? Of course, we talked a little bit about the infrastructure trends and the blockchain, but what do you see when you look further ahead 10 years? How big do you see LivePeer becoming? And you know, what's your total market in your, in your mind? Yeah, good question. So again, big ambitious vision, world's open video infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. That's a 10 to 20 year vision before you could really encompass all the elements of the video stack, right? So we you know, started out with video focused compute in the form of transcoding, Mm -hmm. um, this is a low single-digit billions market. You know, R&D has been expanding that beyond just transcoding to kind of AI-based smart video tasks. So, you know, as video is being streamed, you want AI to, to determine, is this violent content? Is this adult content? Does it yep. have to be moderated, right? Mm -hmm. um, interesting things like object recognition. You know, can yep. we highlight the product that's being sold in a social mm -hmm. commerce mm -hmm. streaming application? Mm -hmm. So we're adding these types of tasks so that expands the market. And then, you know, the world's open video infrastructure also needs open content delivery, which is a, you know, CDN, so that's a big element of the video stack. And so video streaming industry is 70 billion. Um, mm -hmm. That encompasses many different areas. Video is the way that people, um, you know, consume content, entertain, learn, educate one another these days. So it encompasses many areas, but, you know, the ultimate vision is live here is the infrastructure that all of the video enabled uh, use cases on the, the, internet are built upon, 
right? Love it, love it. Love it to see the entrepreneurs with the big vision. That's what we're all looking for, right? So now the big vision also then needs to be broken down. And what are you actually building today? And how do you tell your team what their big priority is? So how do you do that? And has that become more or less difficult as you were growing your team? Yeah, good question. So I think the challenge for any early stage startup is to find product market fit. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. It's great that we have this infrastructure that's 10x more cost effective for transcoding than other infrastructures. But of course, we also have to mature the product and achieve better reliability numbers. Mm -hmm. And one thing we did is we recognized we need to fit into existing video workflows yes. um, as they exist today, right? We can't expect mm -hmm. everyone to just swap out everything in a video stack for, mm -hmm. for live here. And so what we did is we said, well, we need to build the products and services that drive demand onto this network. We, you know, the, the project open project kind of lives at livepeer.org. We said, let's create livepeer.com and let's make mm. that a SaaS type service, right? Yep. Let's create a API for streaming video that looks just like all the other streaming video APIs out there. Yep. And it hides all the complexity of the blockchain and crypto payments and whatnot. And just lets users sign up with a credit card, get an API key and start building their application mm -hmm. same type of documentation. And so that's really been like a, a narrowing guiding focus for the team. So Doug, how have you built up your team around, you know, that search for product market fit, finding your initial go-to market? Is it mostly engineers or is it a, a split between engineers and marketing salespeople? I think you're at 17 people right now, correct? Correct, correct. A little bit of background. My co-founder, Eric, and I are both computer science software engineers by background, and we've built two startups previous to live mm -hmm. here together. And the origins of the project are very technical. So I think in the early days, we're very, very over mm -hmm. product and engineering, right? Our, almost our entire team is product and engineering. And then one of the kind of nice inflection points is that, you know, a year ago we recognized, okay, we'll have to build out this commercial entity that goes and drives demand. And we were able to bring in some great commercial leadership, you know, from the video industry and good research and product insight from the video industry. And so really the core to finding product market fit, I think, is this flywheel that mm. moves between commercial product and engineering working together to very quickly, you know, get information we need to validate a thesis, bring those insights back to the, mm -hmm. the product and, and engineering team, iterate quickly on the, the product and then retest to see what the impact is. And that's like... That's the challenge, right? I don't like. I hope we're doing a good job, but it, you know, when you're in the weeds of it, you always feel like we could be moving faster. Or we could, you know, help information flow quicker, uh, and, and that's the phase that we're in. And I think many startup founders find themselves in. Yes, absolutely. And you know, it's also hard to gauge in that initial iterative mode, like how much progress you're really making, because it really is about testing as many hypotheses as possible, trying to get to hone in more on that target group until it suddenly hits and then you don't know what happened, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One thing that's interesting is, you know, we talked about the blockchain side and, and the supply side and bootstrapping that. Yep. So we actually had a taste, like we have fit on that side mm. for years, yes. right? This, this um, protocol that incentivizes people to join and, and coordinate and ramp up the yep. network. That, that thing hit and, and took off and, and, you know, we built a great community. Mm -hmm. So we actually have thousands of people who are like users slash owners slash running this infrastructure. Right. And, but it's a, it's a whole different world, a whole different user base, a whole different profile <laughs> and whatnot. So it's, it's almost like we're running, you know, two separate 
businesses, if you will, one that has right. and is mature, more mature, and one that is, you know, earlier but has exciting signs of validation, but we still have work to do. You did mention that uh, you and your co-founder, uh, Eric, right? Um, yep. uh, that did do two startups before. Uh, so what have been the learnings from that that you can or cannot apply now to LifePeer? Oh, so many learnings over the years. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, one of the startups previously worked out well and had a, yep. had a good outcome and, and mm -hmm. found its fit in a specific market. And one of them had a great product and a bunch of users that loved it, but really did not work out as a, a business. And I think, you know, there's lessons learned across the whole journeys of both, but I think I learned some specific lessons the hard way from the ones that didn't work that are, and the ones that, that are highly applicable had to do with the dangers and the risks of building on closed platforms. Okay. Right. So we created this mobile browser and mobile publishing platform mm -hmm. called Wildcard that was going to you know, be able to convert any website into kind of a native mobile experience called a card. And we thought these cards would live in Twitter streams and Google search results and Pinterest pins and, oh, yeah. and Facebook. Right. And it actually turns out, so there was a couple of learnings here. So it turns out that all of those things that we thought would happen, that people would be consuming content inside of those platforms happened yes right? like you know you share things in twitter and facebook and they expand and you can actually consume them within those apps without yeah, yeah. To the internet mm -hmm. right and we thought that all of those platforms would kind of open up so that others would have a way to push content in and customize the experience and yeah. help help merchants sell products within there and it turns out they all built their own versions none of them opened up they controlled the experience And so we were kind of tied to this belief that there would be like a more open internet, like the way the internet originally worked. And instead right. we have walled gardens, right? And it was like, man, that is a tough place to be, like not controlling <laughs> your own destiny. And then the other thing too, was like we relied on Apple and the app store for distribution of our app. Yep. And we felt the pain of, you know, our app would be held in review for months or rejected mm. without much reason or communication And we wouldn't be able to push an update or a feature or iterate or whatnot. Yeah. And we were just like, closed platforms, never again. Like, mm. The internet should be this open place where people can you know, control their own destiny, have control over their own economics, like build applications in a way where the rules won't change out from under them. And that's what drew us to kind of this blockchain technology. Good, very good. What do you feel you've learned about yourself in running those uh, three startups now together with Eric? I'm not sure if you can speak for Eric as well, what he's learned about himself, but let's start with you. <laughs> what have I learned about myself? Well, yeah, I, I've certainly learned that I have a very uh, idealistic, mission-driven view of okay. what we're doing, right? And, and what I've always wanted to do. And I, you know... Um, I can feel, I can feel good about that. It can make me like excited to continue working on this stuff every day. But I also face the realities of like mm -hmm. not everyone in the world and the ecosystem and business always shares the same, you know, miss mission centric, idealistic view of <laughs> the world and, and what they're working on. And certainly, you know, money and investment and whatnot plays a, a big, big part of it. Mm -hmm. So that's good. I mean, one lesson I've learned for, through my whole entrepreneurial journey mm -hmm. is that. And I always give this advice to founders is mm. that you have to, you have to be inherently excited and yeah. driven by the underlying market mm -hmm. that you're entering. Right. And, and not just the specific idea that you have, because the specific idea or the specific product is going to change 
and iterate and, and be altered 10 different times on your journey, but you're actually, you're, you're making a commitment to work within your specific mm -hmm. market and industry and solve problems for that industry. And if you're not actually, you know, inherently driven and motivated by that to, to make that specific impact, you're going to pretty quickly get frustrated and challenged when the, the times are, are rough. And by the way, on the entrepreneurial journey, like the times are rough, like most of the time, and then you yes. get a little bit, you know, a moment of, <laughs> celebration and then you know the times are tough and then the moment of celebration and then you keep going so um yeah make sure you're excited about the the market that you're entering and before you kind of commit and, and lean into you know any specific idea the times when founders reach out to you must often be the times when they're feeling down when they're not quite sure so how do you help them overcome these down moments um how do you help them reconnect with their passion and you know find their persistence Yeah, I mean, a lot of times people are doing a lot better than maybe they give themselves credit for, mm. right? Like this whole journey is really, really hard. But if you just take a step back and you're like, I had an idea, I wanted to work on it. I yeah. built the first version. I've got other people to believe in this and join me on it. Maybe I was able to raise some capital around it. We have a product in market. Like each, each of these successive accomplishments is like a small miracle, right? Yes. And so, and reminding people they're not alone and everyone else is going through, everyone else trying to build something is going through this and has gone through this um, mm -hmm. as well can, can provide some, some good perspective. And yeah, remind people it's, it's fun. We're working on what we chose to work on, right? Um, and a lot of people aren't necessarily, you know, in such a fortunate position to be able to do that. So... Yeah, keep keeping the perspective and a positive attitude, I think is good. Absolutely. What's some uh, advice that uh, you have received as a founder that didn't work for you at all? That's a good question. So I want to think of a specific example, but I can definitely think of a trend. Okay. So I think it's really important that a founder is like um, aware of who they are and what, yeah. what their strengths are and what mm -hmm. their bias towards. And then the reflection of that is like, what they want their company to be, mm -hmm. right? And so a lot of times it's very easy for people to give advice that takes the form of what, like how they think a company should operate or right. what may work for a different version of mm -hmm. your company. But if it's not native to who you are and the type of company that you are going to be excited, energized and enthused to build, mm -hmm. then it's never, it's never going to work and it's going to make you frustrated and you're going to feel like you're banging your head against the walls. Yeah, it's a particular problem with mentors, I think, who will typically give you advice based on a, uh, a story they have from when, when they were running a completely separate business 10 years ago, right? So <laughs> it may not be all that applicable, as you, uh, as you were saying. Who do you go to for advice and for, um, you know, when you may be feeling down or feel like you, you need to get out of a, um, out of a slump? You know, I've, I've been fortunate to develop like a great network of mm -hmm. uh, people in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, you know, across the, the 12 years I've been building startups and, and whatnot. So, um, you know, a lot of the people are people that I worked with yep. um, previously mm -hmm. uh, at, at, you know, the different startups that we've worked on. Um, the, you know, investor network of current yep. and past investors has been really, really helpful because they mm -hmm. typically have the perspective of, Yeah, you know, not just my own little world, but actually, you know, their whole portfolio of experiences yes. um, and whatnot. And then, um, 
you know, we, we've never been huge on big, building like big advisory boards, but there's mm-hmm. always been a couple key, you know, advisors or two that I'm, I lean on for, for questions, especially when it comes to something domain specific. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Don't and also, I, I, the... I work with a, I work with an executive coach. Who Excellent. Is, okay. Uh, yeah, invaluable and in, in helping me become a better leader. That's a, that's a good uh, point, actually. So uh, many founders wonder if an executive coach is something they should invest in, if they could really afford it, and if it would provide a return on investment for them. What's been your experience? It sounds like it's positive. Yeah, for me, it's been positive. The coach I work with, Jake Bornstein, focuses on helping me basically get to clarity on key decisions um, or clarity around certain situations or opportunities where often I have my own internal leaning or, you know, my own instinct about what I want to do or what I should do. But for some reason, without working with him, you know, it may take longer. I may never yes. arrive there on my own. And he, you know, helps me see the picture and, and mm-hmm. get to clarity that I need. And I think just the, the time that's saved and like the impact that it makes on a, even just a few key you know, events that occur throughout the lifespan of the company certainly create, you know, a, a definite positive return on investment in terms of the value that's created within the business as a result. Awesome. I'd like to close with a new feature, which is a bit of a quick fire round. I give you two terms and you choose which one gels with you most. Is that okay? Are you open for that? Let's do it. All right. So first is one-on-ones or team meetings? Uh, one-on-ones. One-on-ones and why? Can we? Can you always give me one phrase why? More honest and efficient. Okay, love it. Focus or expansion? Focus, but I struggle with that. <laughs> you struggle with that, fair enough. Why? Why focus? Uh, well, I, I think focus obviously helps narrow everyone to be running at a common goal, no mission, and have, have the clarity that they need, right? Expansion is always appealing because I see I'm excited about infinite <laughs> opportunities ahead of us. So sounds like it's the heart versus mind conflict a little bit there, right? Yeah, so, yeah, probably. Fair enough. OKRs versus KPIs. OKRs. Why? I think like the ambitious and orienting nature of the, you know specific objective helps everyone like put their thinking hat on and identify how they can actually help the company accomplish that and then set the, the key results that maybe end up looking a little bit like, like KPIs in a sense. Mm-hmm. But I actually think, you know, we're, we're, we're too early in many respects to be like establishing these years long KPIs that we're measuring and working against before you kind of have the product market fit. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. Maximal valuation or minimal dilution? Neither, the right <laughs> partners. Excellent. I like that. You're allowed to say neither, of course. I like that. That's very good. And um, well, let's do a simple one. Silicon Valley or Silicon Alley? Silicon Alley. I like New York. I like the energy. I like um, the connectedness of it. And and of course, you can always spend time in and have connections with people in the Valley. But I think nothing beats New York for the dynamic nature and and kind of cross-connections with other industries as well. Absolutely. I do miss uh, visiting New York. I hope that soon we'll be able to, to do that again and uh, reactivate the network over there. I love, I love it as kind of like the second ecosystem in the US as far as, I con- as, far as I'm concerned. Awesome. So um, what can listeners to this podcast potentially contribute to? Uh, what are some of the needs LifePeer has? And if people want to know more, where should they go and what should they download? 
Great. So uh, first and foremost, if you have a vision to build a video application, use mm-hmm. LivePeer. Check out LivePeer.com. Yeah. But the cool thing about LivePeer is that as this open network, this open protocol, this blockchain coordinated ecosystem, anyone can actually participate in the network and in a way be an owner in the network. This is all explained in a great primer at LivePeer.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a link right at the top called Primer that explains it in 10 minutes, but you can you know, participate in this network. You can earn value for some of the fees that people pay to use the network and it's completely open so anyone can get involved. Awesome, awesome, very cool. Well, thank you so much, Doug Pekanix, the uh, founder and CEO of LivePeer. It was a pleasure to have you on the show and to increase our contribution for the, from the awesome New York-based founders. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Excellent. Thank you, everyone. Like what you heard? Subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. Tune in next time for more tech news and interviews with some of the brightest minds in tech today.